Welcome to Hacks for Life with Galen Jones of James Group Ministries, a Christ-centered conversation that will encourage and inspire you to live a better life. Now let's join Galen Jones of James Group Ministries. Welcome to Hacks for Life, and I'm here, uh, Galen Jones, with Scott Rahi, and we're talking about uh, the bigger topic is just Christian apologetics. Um, But we're kind of having a discussion around uh, evolution and how it does or doesn't prove Christianity. It's kind of what we're we're, we're, uh, walking around that that particular topic. And um, Scott mentioned, and I... Scott knows that that I like big words, and and he's (laughs) going to talk about abiogenesis, um, which I don't know that I'd ever even heard that word until you said that that was going to be our – that was – you know, I want to talk around abiogenesis, and I was going, okay. Who is that? Uh, Yeah, Yeah. that that sounds fun. I don't know. I've never met that guy. yeah, Yeah, so let's go with it. So the idea of abiogenesis, you know, one of the things that's really important for people to understand is that the theory of evolution does not talk about the origin of life. Um, it talks about the origin of the diversity of life, but it never makes any claims about how life began initially. Right. And when the earth formed and it was just rocks and you know all this, there was no life on earth. Yep. And at some point, something occurred that the first living organism came into being. and. That's that's what abiogenesis is. Okay. It's somehow some, something that's not living, life came out of that. Does that make sense? Yeah, so that's the origin thing. Yeah. yeah. In fact, you can even... <laughs> You can even look at, at Genesis, and you know some people do look at Genesis and say, "Look, you know, they created Adam out of the dust of the earth. That's non-life come into life." You know, you can you, if you want to refer to that. But mm-hmm. um, I, I've actually I'm, had a conversation. I want to say it was just this morning um, online with a guy, and you'll see this. Um, and this goes back kind of the beginning of this topic, where people come in and they say, um, "Let me just throw some buzzwords out there and, and wave the flag and claim that I know what I'm talking about." This particular guy was like, scientists fully understand abiogenesis. They understand what's going on. They, they know how. They, no, they don't. <laughs> they don't have the first clue about this. And I mean, I try to be nice and gentle about it and say, you know, you might want to do some more reading because what you think they understand, they'll tell you themselves. They don't. They don't know. You know. But the idea is, evolution has to have something occur before. I mean, even if it's true. Um, if all the claims of it are true, something has to happen before evolution can get its start, and that is life has to exist. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, there's no evolution there's no because evolution. there's no life, right? And that kind of takes us back to some previous conversations where there, there's got to be uh, there's got to be something that kicked this whole yeah, thing first off. First cause, right? The yeah, first domino. The, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so um, anyway, I, I wonder I'll, statistically I'll, how many people leave these and go, you know, I'm going to go play dominoes. I haven't done that in a while because <laughs> we keep talking about dominoes. So I want to read a quote from Charles Darwin that he wrote. He wrote a letter in 1871 to a guy named Joseph Hooker, and in there he he gave this uh, quote. He said, "But if and oh, what a big if." We could conceive in some warm little pond with all sorts of ammonia and phosphoric salts, light, heat, electricity, etc. present, that a protein compound was chemically formed, ready to undergo still more complex changes. What he was talking about is this sort of warm little pond just somewhere, and somehow all of these sort of 
forces just kind of worked together, and boom, the first life came out of it. He's trying to get it. He's he knows that there's a dilemma with the origin. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That he's not really answering that question. That's what he's saying is somehow life had to get started, and I'm not in my theory. I'm assuming that's already happened. Uh, I don't know how it happened, but he was positing this idea of a warm little pond. Now, when he did that, people thought mechanism or mechanism organisms were um, significantly simpler than we know them to be today, right? Um, but that was his idea. Now, if you go fast, if you fast forward until today, there's a gentleman. Um, his name is Ken Nielsen. He's at the University of Southern California. At least he was when he gave this quote. And if uh, there's a website. Um, space.com and the article that he was writing is it's the search for the scum of the universe mm. which you know it's kind of mm-hmm. a play on words but he here, here's his quote nobody understands the origin of life if they say they do they are probably trying to fool you um i don't know about this guy this morning i think he just was misinformed i don't think he was trying to fool me but um that's what's you know that's what scientists will tell you is we, we don't know. And they have these ideas, and there's even an experiment they tried to. We'll get to that in a second. But um, one other quote here. And I, you know, I said earlier that I'm not a young earth creationist, and I don't spend a lot of time thinking about that stuff. But there is material in um, young earth creationist websites that I find useful. And this is an example um, that I did, I did think it was worth quoting. And it's, um, it's from the Answers in Genesis website. And here's the quote. One of the pioneering ideas in organic evolution was the, quote, primordial soup. That's what this warm pond that mm-hmm. Darwin was talking about. According to this model, at some point in Earth history, the molten Earth cooled and oceans formed. As rain fell, chemicals in a hypothetical pool warmed by the volcanic activity and energized by lighting, I'm sorry, lightning organized into proteins, lipids, and carbohydrates. These molecules then organized into cellular structures like proteins, DNA, and cell membranes. The problem with this scenario is that chemistry prohibits it. Proteins do not form from piles of amino acids, and DNA contains a specific code that must be copied from another strand of DNA. Proteins cannot form in water because the water breaks the bonds that hold the amino acids together. there's a lot more that you can get out of this out of the site and there's this idea of look you know organisms need oxygen but oxygen is poison to these early uh, organisms and they would have to protect themselves from this and yet they need it in order you know and there's this whole you know in, this idea that you've got requires this element but this element prohibits this idea and it just you know it's, you know, it just co- sort of collapses on itself and you can get that in multiple places um but there was an experiment that was done, and they call it the Miller-Urey experiment. Miller. It's two people. One was the okay. one was the science. Was sorry. One was the professor, and one was the student. And I think Miller might have been the professor, and Urey U R E Y. Two people. Miller dash Urey is how you, how I say it. Um, and what they did, and you can watch videos on this. Um, I think in the Cosmos uh, miniseries that Carl Sagan hosted, he actually had um, the you could see in the background the lab set up the way it was and what these two people did is they said look we're going to build um sort of a structure that simulates the early atmosphere at the beginning of of the earth you know the right combination of you know ammonia ammonia and different different things and they 
then added um, electricity into it, which is supposed to simulate lightning. And then they looked at the resulting sort of stuff that was created after a period of time because it was some stuff that formed on the test tubes. And they found that there were like some amino acids and some of the building blocks of life. And they just announced, we have proven that lightning and all these different uh, sort of um, elements in combination create the building blocks of life. So they extrapolate from that and say, look, here are the building blocks of life. It's not a big leap to say the building blocks came together and their life came as a result. The problem is, and this is actually, you know, I, I mentioned uh, Jonathan Edwards, Jonathan Edwards, that is not Jonathan <laughs> Edwards, <laughs> Jonathan Wells um, wrote the book Icons of Evolution. He has a chapter on the Miller-Urey experiment. So if anybody's interested in a very approachable sort of treatment of this, that's a really good chapter to go read, or at least watch his YouTube video. He's got a, he, I think he's got a, a section on each of the chapters, and he talks about this. But here's what he says on page 22 of his book, um, Icons of Evolution. He says, the conclusion is, cr- is clear. If the Miller-Urey experiment is repeated using a realistic simulation of the Earth's primitive atmosphere, it doesn't work. Therefore, origin, origin of life researchers have had to look elsewhere. Now, what is he saying? He's saying that the conditions that Miller and Urey used, this is the combination of elements, they got that all wrong. The initial uh, elements in the early atmosphere at the beginning of, of the creation of the Earth, they were, they, were the, they were completely different elements. And if you take those elements and use them in the experiment, you don't get the things that Miller and Urey got. So um, the ingredients that that are real, that are actual, that, that seem to you know have been there at the beginning, they don't produce the kind of amino acids in these building blocks of life that they thought. And even if they did, um, and this is another time where I think the answers in Genesis site is useful. They've got a they've got an article called Miller Urey synthesized amino acids of the wrong chirality, and it's C H I R A L. C-H-I-R-A-L-I-T-Y. I'm going to read read what it is because it's a word not many people hear. Chirality is best described by using the analogy of gloves. A right-handed glove and a left-handed glove are mirror images of each other. Proteins in living things are constructed by the living cell by using only left-handed shaped amino acids. The Miller-Urey experiment produced only a few right-handed amino acids and none were remotely similar to those used by living organisms. Now, what is that? What are we saying? Miller-Urey used the wrong ingredients, but even if those had been the right ingredients, the kinds of amino acids they created are not um, the kinds that can produce life. It's a right-handed chirality versus a left-handed chirality, and only the left-handed ones are used in the production of life. It's a, it's a much large, longer article, and this is just a pull quote from the beginning of it. And it's actually got all the pictures and all kinds of stuff that are in there. Um, it's a really good article to read. So, so I, I, just a, I, I'm wondering if our listeners are are, at, are asking the question: How do they? How do we know what was at the beginning? They do it through um, studies of rocks. Like they absorb the gases and they'll go back and say this was this layer of of rock was here at the beginning and. Let, let's pull out and we can do chemical analysis on it and say, yeah, that's there, it's this much nitrogen, this much whatever, oxygen, ammonia, whatever. And that that's how they determine. So is that kind of like carbon dating? Is yeah, it's it like kind it, of similar. In, in a sense. I mean, they're, they're doing. Um, I, I don't know. The, I don't I'm trying to think of a, a good way to this, a better way to describe it. But I mean, it's it's literally it's like a like an ancient um, 
geology. It's like it's like ancient geology, and they're checking it. They do stuff like that, interestingly enough, in Antarctica, with with samples of snow. They'll they'll drill way down, and they'll pull chunks of snow out that have been there for hundreds of thousands of years, and they'll see here's the temperatures at the time, here's you know the environmental conditions at the time, and they can determine all of that by extracting these things that, that sort of attach to the the water molecules in the ice, mm-hmm. and they do the same thing with the, with the rocks. So it's interesting how they can pull that information up. But the important thing is the ingredients that they find by doing this, they're not the ingredients that Miller and Urey used. And when they try to use the ingredients that are the actual early conditions, you don't get these you don't this, get it. You don't get this these life producing <clears throat> amino acids. And even in the Miller Urey experiment, the kinds of amino acids that were produced are not the kind that are used in building uh, as building blocks for life. For life yeah. So people will point to this and say here's proof you know life can just come out of non-life and there's no god that's required i think even if it was if they came out and they were 100 percent right you know okay here's how god produced the first life you know i don't think you get away from that yeah Yeah. i don't think you get away from that at all um but one thing and this is the other thing that this guy said to me this morning he said you know life is fully understood the creation of life whatever um there's a, a book by michael brooks that's called 13 things that don't make sense um, chapter five in that is life, and his whole point in that whole chapter is um, there should be no such thing as life. Living organisms, there is absolutely no explanation for why life exists to begin with. I mean, just there's no explanation because we don't have any idea how it came into being. It's it's one of the greatest mysteries of science. So don't let anybody tell you that they got it all figured out. Yeah, <laughs> abiogen. You'll hear that a lot. Oh, you know they figured it out. You'll hear, oh they've refuted that a long time ago and. I used to think that probably meant that I was just uneducated on something and I needed to kind of go back into my corner and go, okay, they know a lot more than me. What I've found is that people make a lot of claims and oh. nobody ever seems to be able to back these claims up, just like this guy this morning. Yeah. Abiogenesis, no, they don't. And I could say that confidently because I've read a lot about this topic. Mm-hmm. And no, unless they did it in the last 24 hours, it's, you know, <laughs> and I doubt that's happened. Yeah. So, But we do this, you know, humans do this in all, like, like we said in a previous conversation that, you know, we try to prove things and we will um, exaggerate uh, and we will make claims to prove our point right. without any data, That's factual right. data behind it. Um, and, you know, socially where we are and where humans are in this period, I think we're way, way over the the top with just making claims and people buying into them without exploring the data. Right. Um, yep, I agree. So let me just be. And I know this is a bit of a, you know, referring back to the mm-hmm. previous conversation. But let's. I'll wrap up with this really quick. I had told you that I was going to pull the Charles the Charles Foster quote from his book, the selfish the mm-hmm. selfless gene, to talk about. Um, an alternate way to maybe look at the creation as opposed to a literal 24-hour day. This is the scientific way it happened. I want to reread that quote, even though it's, it, I did it in the past, but I think it's you know worth going ahead and doing that just because it's a relevant topic for, for here. Uh, so here's the quote from, from Charles Foster. Again, it's uh, the, self, the selfless gene, and it actually is found on pages 131 to 133 of the book. It's a really interesting book to read. And he says, There is almost universal scholarly agreement that the Genesis accounts, the creation accounts, mm-hmm. that the Genesis accounts are at least in part 
polemical documents designed to contradict the view of the world and the gods enshrined in the competing Mesopotamian and Egyptian religions. It is an anti-polytheistic track. In the beginning, God, it starts, not gods and not creatures. The book opens by the clearest possible assertion that there is God and only one of them, and there are creatures. They are not the same. There is a colossal divide. To worship anything created is to make a basic and terribly dangerous mistake. The lesson is repeated again and again. The astrological cults of Mesopotamia and Egypt are subtly but unmistakably insulted. In Genesis, the sun, moon, and stars are all created together on day four, after the plants. Since light was created on day one, which is, this is of course scientific nonsense, and the compilers knew it. They knew where light came from, but it makes admirable polemical sense. The heavens are being demoted. Not only are they expressly created things, but they also follow meekly after the plants in the created order. It would, be, it would make more sense to worship a cabbage than to bow down to the stars, the Bible is saying. And there is still more denigration. The sun and the moon are rather like household lamps, calendars, and watches. They are everyday things. You use them to light the room and to remind you of dates and times. They do not use or rule you. Only a fool prostrates himself before the kitchen clock. In the catalog of the created order, everything, once it is created, is said to be good. Everything, that is, apart from man and the sky. The message is clear enough. Do not look either to yourselves or to the sky for your guidance. The weak is reclaimed from its bondage to the sky. The Mesopotamians had seven-day lunar cycles, and in obeisance to the moon, the seventh day was a fast day, a day of ill luck. You had it wrong, says the Bible. The seventh day has nothing to do with the moon, and to make the break explicit, the seventh day becomes not a time to fast, fear, and mourn, but a time to celebrate. In case the reader misses it, the point is rammed home still harder in the summary of the first week's work. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, it says. It is an odd, rather clumsy formulation for anyone not familiar with Mesopotamian religion. But the contemporary readers would have picked up the reference immediately. It is a biting satire on the elaborate genealogies of the gods and goddesses of the Mesopotamian cosmogony. This is the real family tree of your supposedly divine star, uh, star and moon deities, the author is saying. And you can see that they were all shaped, and quite late in the day, too, by the one true God, the one we worship. Later on in Genesis and elsewhere in the Bible, the allusions to the Mesopotamian myths become even more explicit. Any pious Mesopotamian would be shocked and appalled at the blasphemy of Psalm 104, which talks about the great sea monster Leviathan being formed by God to sport in the sea. In Mesopotamian mythology, sea monsters were among the elemental forces of chaos which had to be defeated by the Creator before the business of creation could begin. But to these flippant Hebrews and their God, these awesome monsters, mere creatures like everything else, have entertainment value. Now, 
I'd said before when I read this before, I'm not saying that this is exactly how things were, but you mentioned the Israelites being in the desert and needing reassurance. They were surrounded by these other cultures, mm-hmm. the Egyptians, the Mesopotamians. They were homeless, you know, wandering through the desert for 40 years. This would have been of enormous comfort to them. Yes. Yeah. And saying, hey, those other gods, let's make fun of them because they can be made fun of. They're not real. Mm-hmm. You know, the sun, you don't worship the sun. The moon, you don't worship the moon. And I think this is, to me, when I read that, um, it's probably one of the quotes that I've liked the most through the years. And yeah, the Bible is not intended as a science textbook. I think what it teaches is always accurate and infallible, but I don't think it's intending to convey scientific truth whenever it's describing the the creation. So anyway, that's from the previous uh, conversation, but I did promise that I would read that because you had mentioned this idea of the Israelites. So it's kind of a, just kind of an appendix on the end of this conversation. And we'll get back to finishing kind of the evolution discussion, um, starting with the next, next uh, conversation. I don't know how many more you know, parts that will be to this. But again, I don't want to go too fast because this is an important topic and you'll hear it raised all the time by the skeptical community. Yes, yes. Um, and like I said, I think it, this even benefits um, just those that are seeking right. and those that are just shore, shoring up their faith and thinking about uh, topics about our origin as humans. Yeah. Um, I, I know one thing it does for me, it just strengthens my conviction that God did create. Oh yeah, yeah, and which and, and takes me on to Jesus, which you know that that, that yeah, whole thing. It so. is it is a stepping stone, and I think you know people that are thinking, am I you know can I be a Christian? Do I have to believe something about evolution? No, you can believe in evolution. You can believe that evolution is false. There are people that believe both. That's okay. Don't let it be a roadblock for you. Yeah. Don't let it get in the way. Let's talk about the most important stuff. Yeah. So exactly. Okay. Exactly. So let's do talk about the most important stuff. We'll keep going. And we'll keep going. All right. Look forward to it. You've been listening to Hacks for Life with Galen Jones of James Group Ministries. The James Group is a nonprofit Christ-centered organization that seeks to serve the community by offering skilled caring support for anyone in need. For help, call 972-243-4673. That's 972-243-4673. Thanks for listening. Join us next time for another Hacks for Life with Galen Jones.